Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore issues of free expression, privacy, and the roles of corporate and government entities in moderating social media content and platforms. As digital media takes a central place in communication and information sharing, how do we navigate the balance between free speech, safety, privacy, and harm? My guest is Danny O'Brien, Director of Strategy at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. start our conversation by talking about just sort of getting a baseline so everyone's on the same page. Free speech first. (laughs) Let's talk about what really do we mean when we say free speech, because people have their own ideas of what it means. I think we can view it in a couple of ways. Um, We can think of it sort of domestically, because I think a lot of people associate the United States with really strong free speech protections. And that's down partly to the First Amendment, but partly to a sort of body of law that has um, strengthened that protection over the years. But then you also have to think of, of free speech, or usually it's called free expression in the rest of the world. Um, and that's as a basic human right. You know, it's it's established as an inalienable right around the world. So it's not like the United States is an island of free speech in a sea of censorship. Every country that signed up to the international human rights instruments has some basic protection for free expression. And sometimes there are differences between those two, those two um, evaluations of speech. But I actually, as someone who works in both of those areas, and of course, uh, to deal with free speech on the internet, um, I often think the differences are much smaller than the agreements. For me, and I want to, I, I want to talk about the international approaches, um, but I want to talk first about the way uh, we're in the U.S. that we're talking about speech and expression. With this right comes responsibility, and nothing is free from consequences. And and I think what I you know what I've heard a lot from all sides of say the political debate or in in the digital space. I want to say what I want to say, and I don't want any pushback. And if you're pushing back on me, you're canceling me or you're denying my rights to free expression, things like that. So when we talk about free expression, either here or elsewhere, uh, does that mean we just have the unfettered right to a microphone and the unfettered right to not be challenged? It's not as if it's a sort of blanket right um, with no qualifications in general. So what the idea of free speech means in its sort of widest sense is just that certain laws governing speech acts um, have to withstand some extra scrutiny. You can't just pass a law and assume that it's not going to be challenged in some way. Also, I think it's worth noting that free speech isn't just the act of, of, of speaking, right, of, of, of communicating to people. There are lots of different forms of that. For one thing, again, in sort of international human rights law, but it's kind of implied in, in, uh, in the US context, you've got a right to receive information, right? You have a right to say, um, I want to find out something. I want to be able to receive that. Similarly, you have a right to choose not to receive information. You shouldn't be forced to listen to someone else's blatherings. And finally, you have a choice to what you are compelled to say, right? So someone else, in particular the government, can't tell you, you have to say this thing. 
Uh, and this is sort of important because, again, one of the things that's sort of interesting about the US context is in the US, we accord some of these rights indirectly to uh, institutions and organizations. So when we think about, you know, should Twitter have Donald Trump uh, on, online? Well, Twitter, the organization, has some rights about what it is compelled to say and not compelled to say. Twitter has put out some guidelines as far as this is the kind of speech will allow. And they pulled Donald Trump's uh, account down and many other accounts based on what they said was a violation of their of their policies with regard to speech and expression. Talk a little bit about about this power that these social media companies have, but also when we should and shouldn't be doing that. The decisions that they make are often opaque and selective. Uh, and in fact, it, very difficult for them not to be at the kind of scale that they operate. So Abif, if it is one with Donald Trump, for example, is not that they um, threw him off, but like, what was the process there? Like, was there just some magic day where Donald Trump said one particular thing that was over the line? And, you know, people can say that it was the Capitol riots that did it. But if you look at Twitter's rules that you've described, um, they could have thrown him off for a bunch of reasons a long time earlier than this, and they didn't. So what is the process by which they did that? And in particular, I'm pretty confident that Donald Trump is still going to get his free speech rights in other fora, right? He's the former president. He's quite well known. Our problem is when people are silenced arbitrarily on these social media platforms, don't have anywhere else to go, and don't have the kind of popular support that someone like a major public political figure has. Um, but to answer your main question of like, what are like, you know, what are Twitter's rules on this? As I say, they're actually very vague and they're not really based on any kind of legal model. And if they were, they would be based on US legal models, which of course very different from places in the rest of the world. Uh, and all of these forums, Facebook, Twitter, the social media platforms are actually far more restrictive than you would see in, in legitimate speech. And that's kind of their selling point, right? Like you don't want to go to one of these social media platforms to see all speech because then 99% of it would be spam and a lot of it would be, you know, horribly abusive. They do moderate. The question that we all have, I think, is like, how are they moderating and how come we as individuals don't have any influence or insight into how those decisions are made right that makes a lot of sense and so so what we're what you're hoping to see is a little bit more transparency in the process well what do you think of the um the sort of the flagging i'm going to flag this content or i'm going to let twitter know. do you feel like that gives any agency at all to the user our experience of flagging is sort of on the flip side because we often uh, deal with defending targeted or, or, or marginalized communities around the world. And, you know, the problem with flagging is that it is often used as a form of abuse to silence individuals. If you say an unpopular opinion and everyone flags it, and the algorithm that these companies are using is if this many people flag it, then it should go down. That's a great way for the majority to oppress a minority around the world. Of course, social media companies have learned that lesson, so they don't 
that's just like a signal going into their um their management of the of, of these systems but no matter how complicated the algorithm is there's always somebody who can what we call game it right there's always somebody who can like try and extrapolate what that algorithm is and use it to silence their opposition or even kind of make their opposition look like they're the abusive ones uh and again that's a game that that people on the far right have used against uh their critics and the same in, in, in many other kind of political battles. You mentioned earlier that different countries have different sort of parameters. Well, I mean, a lot of it's the same, but when it comes to Twitter and, and all of that, that they're looking at expression and speech slightly differently. So how does that play out? I mean, we've seen some cases pop up. I'm thinking of Google in Australia, and I'm thinking of the European Union. And these, these might not be related cases, but there are efforts internationally to grapple with social media companies and how they operate. How are other countries or other parts of the world dealing with Twitter's approach to content moderation and approach to pulling accounts and things like that. We talked a little bit earlier about kind of the interaction between the rules on Twitter and the actual letter of the law. And, you know, in some cases, I've said that, that these social media companies are usually more restrictive about speech, but there are some interesting bits where these websites would allow you to do something that would actually be unlawful speech in some countries. To pluck two examples out of the air, I think the one that a lot of people know is like Nazi memorabilia and imagery in Germany. That's not something that you're allowed to share. Um, another example might be criticisms of the king in Thailand, which is a, a criminal act there. So what we have seen over time is the social media companies sort of wrangling with this and coming to a general kind of precedent that what they do is they don't take down that content, they um, hide it if you're in that particular country. So that would allow, depending on where you are, on the positive side, uh, people outside Thailand to discuss the current political situation with the king there. On the downside, perhaps, um, it means that people outside Germany can disseminate Nazi memorabilia. May have problems, but, but it sort of is an attempt to replicate the jurisdictional issue. I think one of the things that's sort of interesting is when companies or countries try to kind of enact a law outside their jurisdiction. So for example, if uh, Thailand said to these social media companies, hey, actually, we want criticism of our king to disappear wherever it is, right? We want it to vanish from all the servers of the earth. That's something that countries readily try and do. Another one, just to flip it around a bit, is that the US is a bit of an outlier in terms of nudity and the transmission of nudity. There are many countries that don't take the same level of prudish outrage at nudity. But most of these social media platforms actually impose US standards of nudity. So you get into this situation where Facebook will decide to take down um, uh, fine art in France or um, the depiction of the child being napalmed, which is, you know, famous and uh, powerful news image. Award-winning news image, yeah. Right. Um, so 
then you enter into this weird situation where you have countries trying to impose their standard globally of free speech, or actually the US kind of exporting its more, shall we say, informal, but more easily imposed ideas of what is appropriate and what isn't on these social media platforms. There was an example just the other day, the Holocaust Remembrance Day, and uh, someone posted on Twitter, hey, Facebook, you've pulled down my Holocaust Remembrance Day post because it, it had historical photos of people being, you know, shuttled into train cars. And th sometimes the algorithm, you know, overreaches a bit when we're trying to remember history and, and uh, face it. Well, sometimes the algorithm is working to a number of different constraints. So is Facebook uh, a platform for people to, you know, just share family photos with their friends or, you know, as it was originally to keep in contact with your college friends? Or is it a vehicle for the dissemination of news and political discussion? An algorithm would work very differently in those two contexts. And I think that part of the problem we have right now, maybe even 100% of the problem, is that we're trying to cram all of these different ideas of free expression into a handful of quasi-monopolistic platforms. I want to ask what's the solution? We break them up. The problem here is that this is from a point of view of preserving the values of free expression in an open society. This is a problem that you just can't solve at this scale, right? Like Facebook is trying to make decisions about what people can and cannot say for billions of people in hundreds of billions of different cultural contexts and is expected to get it right all, all the time. And I don't think that's a responsibility that we should put on anyone. It doesn't matter whether it's Mark Zuckerberg or the United Nations or Donald Trump or his successor or what have you. It's just too big a, a power. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with Danny O'Brien, Director of Strategy at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. In the early days of the internet, um, you'd be in a situation where if you didn't like how people were filtering or censoring you on one platform, you could move to another. And I think there are a bunch of other problems that we face. Um, through privacy invasions to distorting the body politic that come out of that monopoly position. How do you break them up? With Ma Bell, right, you could break them up into regions, you know, and with Standard Oil, you could break that up. But how does one break up this digital technology? And even Google, I think there's a pathway, right? But, but Facebook, Twitter, yeah. We look at the breakup of the phone company. Uh, of AT&T, you know, some of the regulatory solutions to that didn't work out so well because they all just went into local local bells and then they kind of merged back together again. Um, some of the technological advances, including the internet itself, really did put a lot of pressure on those, those companies. On the technological side of things, though, I think it's super interesting to see people uh, looking at ways to um, start their own networks in competition with Facebook and Google and see how you can kind of support those seeds of the future rather than kind of hacking and slaying the companies themselves. I think both are going to be involved, but I think from the point of view of, of 
sitting here in San Francisco, often it's technology that gives people a lever um, more than uh, waiting for Washington to step in. Okay, got it. Well, you brought up new platforms, and so that leads me to Parler, Gab, yes. Clubhouse. Um, yeah, I mean, they're all... That's an interesting trio to use, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so so there are platforms out there who are trying to um, establish themselves, bring in audiences, cater to people who are frustrated by what have become monolithic social media platforms. The natural question for me is, these platforms exist now, and Parler was on Amazon Web Services, which has become a, a huge hosting service and they made the decision to pull parlors uh hosting at first i was like yeah i think you know when there is insightful content and there is you know threatening content and that you can kind of directly map it to the insurrection or the riots at the capitol that that amazon had a reason to do it but as you astutely point out there are huge implications because uh, I'm again thinking of the murkiness of it. Like, what was exactly the reason? I can assume it was that, and that makes sense to me. But, you know, wh what's going to happen now? Right, right. Again, there's this sort of element that we've touched on about American jurisprudence around free speech, which is that private companies have the right to decide who is on or off their services. That's a free speech act that they themselves are pursuing. Uh, but in the same way as, you know, there's no black and white about these issues, I'm not sure that we would think of sort of the free speech rights of phone companies to be able to decide based on the content of your phone call, whether they are going to connect that call or not. I think what we and other sort of folks in this area are trying to tease out at the moment is where those lines draw. Like a lot of people in the digital rights community fought very hard for the idea of net neutrality. And, you know, there is a counter argument that the ISPs have pushed for that net neutrality being the idea that the ISPs, your, your local broadband provider should carry everything. So they shouldn't be filtering and blocking stuff based on how much people have paid them. There's a counter argument that the ISPs have actually made where, well, we have free speech rights too. We should be able to choose like which services use our wires. And um, we've argued that that's not a strong argument. There is a First Amendment question here, but you can answer it within standard First Amendment jurisprudence that says that other reasons trump that. Similar debates begin to play out now with these other services, right? I think that the, in the past, EFF have talked about the domain name service, like, can someone just say, okay, you, you don't get this domain name anymore. You don't get this web address. We've decided we don't like you, Google, or we don't like you, uh, the New Republic. Therefore, you're never going to have this domain name again. Mm -hmm. Dodgy. Yeah, weird. Very. A bad idea, right. probably. <laughs> Amazon, I think, is on the gray area of that, which is why we wanted to talk about what happened with, with Parler. I think another good example is Zoom. So... Two years ago, who would have heard of Zoom? You know, a few companies used it for business communications primarily. Zoom actually decided not to allow a bunch of California universities to have a, a presentation by a Palestinian activist because of arguments that they were connected in some way to terrorism. Is that 
a decision that Zoom should be making about Californian um, universities. We're just beginning to work out these rules. And like anything in free speech discussions or First Amendment discussions, there are shades of gray that we probably have to draw some line somewhere. And it's just right now is the moment where we're trying to decide those things. I love having this discussion and trying to tease all of this out, because to me, when you talk about the San Francisco State and the CSU Zoom decision to not allow that to happen, I actually align that more with a phone call because Zoom is, it's a, it's a space inside which we're having what appears to be a private conversation or between a small number of people. But when we talk about Parler, I align that more with, say, cable news or broadcast news because I feel as if Parler has a mass media reach in a different sense than Zoom does. Um, although, of course, you are still talking to your own group. Anyone can potentially access that. Right. And Parler, by its very nature, is sort of like Twitter or another social media platform, is sort of an umbrella for a lot of other discussions, some of which may be cause for violent insurrection, which is not actually unprotected by the First Amendment. <laughs> I mean, the reason why we had so many First Amendment fights is to protect the rights of, of communists and uh, anti-war activists in the United States to challenge the existing political structure, right? That's one of the things First Amendment protects, right? But one of the issues here is that, that what we also kind of want from, from these acts is that they're scalpels, not sledgehammers, right? When an individual is thrown off Twitter or, or even a Twitter is deleted or marked with, this might not be correct about the election, we can at least say this was the speech act that was bad and this is what we're doing about it. If you cut off an entire um, platform, I mean, you may think everybody in parlor is, is disreputable, but it's not like any of us have looked through. There were some parts of parlor that were, were you know, QAnon central, and there were some parts that were just, you know, your traditional mom and dad conservatives who had gone there because Ted Cruz says he was gonna hang out there. And, you know, in terms of numbers, I'm pretty sure that Facebook have more mad conspiracy theories playing out in its groups than Parler ever had, just by sheer numbers. Does that mean that, that Facebook should be thrown off all these services? Maybe, but it's not. Amazon pulled Parler, and, and there are some questions about whether it should be pulling an entire platform down. My understanding was that Amazon did give Parler a list of sort of parameters for how they can be replatformed. Would that amount to some specifics or do we need more from Amazon about how are you making these decisions? I think both. One of the challenges, to be frank, with being, you know, a free speech activist in this particular time is that the term free speech has definitely been hijacked by a lot of very unsavory people to mean, as you said at the beginning of this interview, you know, we have the right to cram our violent and unpleasant beliefs into everybody's eyes and they can't do anything about it. One of the things that I think is interesting about that rhetorical twist is that really nobody believes in that model of free speech. One of the Amazon's rules that they hung over uh, Parler was they kind of expect you to have some decent moderation in place. And that makes sense because if you 
don't and you're running a service like this, it quickly gets taken over by spammers or people who don't like your service uploading truly unlawful content, vile content like child pornography, right? So you can't like run a service like that on Amazon because it will quickly get taken over by people conducting criminal activity. And Amazon's argument was that this is what was happening on Parler. And this puts Parler in an interesting place. And this is something that we predicted would happen when Parler started saying, we're gonna be the place where free speech really lives. And as free speech activists, we were like, that's not actually what you're gonna do. <laughs> because for instance, if a bunch of, you know, anarcho-communists decided to write a bunch of programmed bots to post the red flag into every one of your discussions, you would probably throw them out, right? It's not that Parler is like the free speech area, it's that it has its own idea about what free expression should be accepted and what expression shouldn't. The argument between Amazon and Parler, well, the legitimate argument I think is Amazon saying, you have unlawful content on your platform. As I said before, there's really not that much unlawful content. Like you have to work pretty hard to violate the First Amendment, even with threats and, and hate speech. I wouldn't be surprised if Parler crossed that line. I wouldn't actually be surprised that they weren't trying to moderate that content well aware that it crossed a legal line too. The other thing to note is that people get super mad about Section 230, but Section 230 doesn't protect these intermediaries from being prosecuted for genuinely unlawful content. You can't wave Section 230 around and defend against child pornography being on your service, right? It doesn't prevent criminal prosecution. It's only for lawsuits like defamation, civil lawsuits. So we already have the laws on the books to go after a service like this criminally if there was real criminal action going on. How little speech is actually criminalized or problematic, obscenity, incitement, um, you know, threatening speech. In the U.S., we, we grapple with hate speech, and I, and I believe other countries are handling this differently. I'm wondering if we should take some lessons or not. And I'm asking this question from the perspective of, you know, I teach a lot of students who come from traditionally marginalized communities and the stakes with regard to hate speech are a lot higher for them. It really is harmful. I don't want to chill speech. I'm a journalist. I'm a First Amendment lover. That's not it. But I, I wonder if we haven't figured out how to quite grapple with, with dealing with hate speech and whether you have any idea about how to approach that or how other countries have approached that. No matter where you draw the line, you always have this kind of debate. So we ban Nazi memorabilia in Germany. Guess what German Nazis use? They use the Confederate flag. <laughs> as their indicator that we are Nazis. People intending to threaten other people have always known how to navigate those rules in order to avoid them getting into trouble, but maybe baiting or provoking the marginalized community to fight back. And then at that point, they managed to somehow turn power against the disenfranchised community. And so that's kind of what you have to look at when these lines are drawn. People always assume that the First Amendment, you know, was written in the 18th century and has been the same gold standard all along. Well, that's absolutely not true. 
most of our First Amendment positive decisions happened in the last 40 to 50 years. We could decide to shift things again, but if we do, the biggest question that will always be asked is, it's gonna be people in power who enforce this line. And we have a long track record of these rules being used against the most powerless in society, no matter what good intentions were originally set up. That's the debate we will always have. And I kind of agree with you that with the development of the internet, we're coming to some conclusions about where those lines should be drawn. But sometimes it takes a little while for the legal system to catch up. It's probably good that we're thinking and talking about this right now. It's a complicated topic and we're always learning. Thank you to my guest, Danny O'Brien, Director of Strategy at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. To read more about any of these issues, go to EFF.org. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.